Good evening. Good to see everyone. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 41? It's been a while. We uh, haven't been in the book for maybe a month. Uh, been gone. Things going on. Our week of fasting and prayer. Let me just uh, kind of uh, catch up a little bit before we get into tonight's study. In uh, chapter 40, uh, we read how that um, Pharaoh had a couple of uh, right-hand guys, servants. One was a butler, the other a baker. And they both dream—they excuse me, before they dreamed these dreams, they um, got Pharaoh upset somehow, the chief butler and baker. So he put him into the prison. While there, they met Daniel. But before they really had much interaction with Daniel, God gave to each of these men uh, a, a dream. And they were troubled. And, and uh, Joseph, did I say Daniel? Okay, I'm sorry, man, I'm really... All right, I get Daniel and Joseph mixed up. I know who they are, but I'll say that, you know. Anyways, uh, Daniel also interpreted the dream. That wasn't for a lot later, though. Uh, but Joseph, okay, uh, saw that they were kind of down and said to them, what's going on? Why are you guys so down? And he said, well, we've had these dreams. We don't know what they mean. So Joseph said, doesn't God know the interpretation of dreams? Tell me the dreams. Well, make a long story short, after the, uh, the butler tells uh, Joseph his dream, and Joseph said, well, it's good news. I mean, after three days, uh, Pharaoh's going to restore you back to your old job, and you're going to uh, again, uh, you know, give him his cup, because he was a cupbearer and, and a butler and all, and uh, that's going to be good. So the baker hears this and goes, well, boy, I, I dreamed a dream too. You know, I like to hear some good news. So uh, he tells Joseph the dream, and Joseph said, well, that's not so good. <laughs> In three days, uh, Pharaoh's going to lift your head off your shoulders, and, uh, you know, you'll, you're going to die. And uh, it came to pass just as Joseph said. And Joseph said to the butler, look, when you... Um, are restored back to, you know, Pharaoh, will you put a good word in for me? Because I don't belong here. I've been railroaded. But when the butler was released, he forgot about Joseph. Another couple of years goes by. And Pharaoh has a couple of dreams in one night. And he was very troubled. Didn't know what to make of them. None of the wise men uh, could interpret the dreams. And so the butler goes, man, I am really made a mistake here. I, I know a guy in prison who interpreted a couple of dreams for your servants, myself and the chief baker, and they came to pass, the interpretation came to pass just as he had said. And uh, so I'm sure he can give Pharaoh an interpretation to his dreams. So they called for Joseph, cleaned him up first in the hall, and brought him in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, I hear you can interpret dreams. Joseph was a very humble man, says, no, actually interpretations belong to God, but if you tell me the dreams, God will give you an interpretation. And so Pharaoh did. He said, look, I was sleeping and I saw uh, these um, seven uh, healthy fat cows come up out of the Nile and uh, real plump and fat. Then I saw after that seven lean cows, scrawny, sickly, ugly looking, and they ate up the seven healthy looking cows. And yet they didn't look any fatter. They were still skinny and scrawny. And then I woke up and uh, I fell back asleep again and Next, I dreamed a dream. I saw seven uh, stalks of wheat, all plump and good. Then I saw seven others come up who were, that were blighted and uh, withered, and they ate the seven fat stalks of wheat, and I woke up. 
And I don't know what's going on. I have no one to interpret these dreams. Joseph said, he said, the two dreams are really one. And uh, basically what they are is that the seven fat cows, the seven fat, uh, you know, stalks of wheat, they represent seven years of plenty that's going to come upon all the land of Egypt. I mean, really plentiful years. But they'll be followed directly after that by seven very lean years of famine. And uh, they're going to eat up all the richness of the first seven years, and uh, it's going to be bad throughout the whole land. Not the whole land of Egypt only, but actually the whole world at that time. And so uh, Joseph says, look, here's what I uh, recommend you do. Appoint somebody to store up grain in the seven plentiful years and so that you'll have food for the seven years of famine. Well, Pharaoh was so taken with Joseph that he said, look, there's nobody as wise as you in all my kingdom. You're the guy. I want you to take charge of this. In fact, on the spot, he promotes him to prime minister. I mean, you know, puts robes on him, a robe on him, a special ring on his finger, and uh, makes him prime minister over all of this. We pick it up in verse 45 of chapter 41. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave him his wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and he went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven, and here's where we pick it up, verse 47. In the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now look, the reason I believe that Joseph was so well balanced psychologically in the face of all he had endured over the last 13 years of his life was because he didn't let bitterness or hatred or revenge enter into his heart and consume him. That was a very important point. You say, well, how was he able to do that? Very simply, he trusted in God's sovereignty. Now, we've talked about this, all right? Joseph had a very strong relationship with God. He believed that God was all-powerful. God was sovereign. Whatever he wanted to do, he could do, and nothing touched the lives of his servants except what he allowed for a purpose. And Joseph just chose to focus on God's sovereignty and God's plan for his life and all of this. He had a strong faith that God was allowing this for a reason. I believe Joseph's faith was strong enough in his relationship with God deep enough that he realized, look, the way I've come to Egypt, I just believe in, in all the things I've done how I've been faithful, I've tried to do my best at every job I was given, uh, whether in uh, Potiphar's house or then later on in the prison with the jailer. Uh, and yet God has continued to keep me here. He must have a reason. He must have a plan for my life and all of it. And see, he chose to focus on God's plan instead of planning his own revenge against those who had wronged him. 
That was the secret, I believe, of his emotional well-being. In other words, Joseph, by God's grace, let go of the past. Manasseh means forgetting. And that allowed him to receive God's blessing in the present. Ephraim means fruitful or, you know, greatly blessed of God. You know, again, I've always admired Joseph for how well-balanced he was mentally uh, in the face of the injustice and false accusations that he had experienced at the hands of his brothers and Potiphar's wife. And how when he finally had the opportunity, when he was elevated to a place of prime minister over all the land of Egypt, he could have immediately uh, sent, you know, assassins to take his brothers out. He could have immediately had Potiphar's wife arrested and hung. He could have taken vengeance on those who had wronged him. But instead he chose not to do that. And I think the very names he chose to name his sons by give us insight into his secret. And once again, it's just as we said, he didn't hold on to bitterness, choosing rather to focus on God's sovereignty instead of on those who hurt him. In fact, this comes out very clearly in a statement he makes to his brother in chapter 50, when after Jacob died and now they were afraid he was going to get even with them. He only kept them alive while dad was alive. But now that dad's gone, surely he's going to kill us. And they were terrified, and Joseph calls them in and says, Look, judgment belongs to God. Judgment belongs to God. But by the way, he said, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive from this famine is the idea. So Joseph is saying, Look, you guys meant evil towards me, but I chose not to look at you guys and the evil you intended. I chose to focus on God's sovereignty and what God had for me in it. And I have come to realize his plan was to use me to save the world. <laughs> He's a type of Christ. Distributing the grain, which was used for making bread. Jesus Christ is the bread of life and so on. So many parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Uh, but we don't have time to get into all those tonight. But there's a lot of resources you can get. Probably more than any other person in the Bible, Joseph was a type of Christ a savior of the world. One author put it well when he said, and I quote, what a tragedy when people remember the painful things others have done to them and all their lives carry bitterness that robs them of peace and joy today. Just as Joseph laid aside his prison clothes and made a new beginning, so we frequently need to take off the old hurts and put on the new attitude of faith and love, end quote. Well, verse 53. Then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do it. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. I mean, there were such a, the seven years of plenty were so incredible that he had grain not only to provide for the Egyptians, but also all who came to purchase it. So he opened the storehouses, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all lands. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? 
And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Jacob looks at his sons and goes, You know, why are you guys standing around looking at yourselves? That's not going to get us, you know, fed. Now, I hear there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy us some grain that we can, you know, live and not die. I want you to understand that God brought this severe famine for one reason. I'm convinced. For one reason. And that was to get Joseph and his sons and their families down to Egypt. You say, well, that's a lot of work to get one family moved from one place to another. Well, it's a very important family, okay? Happened to be the family Messiah was going to come from, so God took a little extra care and time with them. But it's not uncommon when God wants to work in the life of one that it somehow touches many other lives. Another example would be the census that Caesar Augustus uh, imposed on all the citizens of the Roman Empire. A census that was designed by, or Caesar Augustus thought he was, it was his idea. Oh, I think I'll, you know, take a census. And God says, yeah, yeah, you keep thinking like that, right? I mean, the Lord put it in his heart. Why? Because God had to get Joseph and Mary, who at this point was well along in her pregnancy, 70 miles to the south from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why? Because God had prophesied to uh, the prophet Malachi that um, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, in the county of Ephrathah. Well, they weren't going to make that journey this far along in her pregnancy. It was a tough journey. So God pulled the strings on his little puppet in Rome, and uh, Caesar decided, hey, I think I'll take a census, which meant everybody had to return back to their hometown. Joseph came from Bethlehem. So God got them back to Bethlehem in time for Jesus' birth because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. You know, when God's got a plan for our lives, uh, he will do some incredible things to get us from point A to point B. And again, it may also encompass other people that they don't even know why, okay, things are happening in their life. But if, truth be told, if God revealed his will, they would realize that God is moving them because he needs them to move, you know, help his servant to get where he needs them to be, and so on. So it's God, God's ways are past finding out, right? They're awesome. So verse 3, So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. Why? How? What's going on? Well, first of all, it's been about 22 years since they've seen him last. He's matured. He was 17 the last time they saw him. Now he's, you know, uh, was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh. The seven good years have passed. He's about 39 now. So 22 years have passed since the last time they saw him. That's number one. Number two, uh, not only is he matured, but he's wearing the royal robes of the Egyptian court. 
I mean, he's all decked out. He's clean-shaven. The, the, the Semites or the Hebrews, they always had beards, but the Egyptians, they uh, were clean-shaven. And so they didn't recognize him because of that. And probably the biggest reason is they didn't recognize him was because it never crossed their minds that after all these years they would ever see Joseph alive, alive again, especially as prime minister in Egypt. Come on, I mean, you can see how they would not recognize him. Besides that, he was speaking to them in Egyptian through a translator. Now, the Hebrew word for bow down is the same in verse 6, is the same Hebrew word used in chapter 37. Remember when God gave to Joseph a couple of dreams. And um, I'll just read to you about the first one. They both basically are saying the same thing. So he said to his brothers, uh, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. He thought this was going to be great. They were going to really enjoy hearing these two dreams. So it didn't work out that way. Uh, there we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Same Hebrew word. Verse 8, so Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, I can't really imagine the flood of emotions that Joseph must have been experiencing at that moment. I mean, no doubt he is shocked to see his brothers standing right in front of him. And as soon as they walked up, he recognized them immediately. And all of a sudden, all the bad, painful memories came flooding back into his mind. Of the last time he saw them, remember we've already studied how they hated him for his dreams and that he was Jacob's favorite. And so they waited and uh, caught him out in the field and they took him and threw him in a pit where he was crying, up, pleading for his life. And then later on, they decided, let's not kill him. The plan was to leave him in the pit to die. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery, make some money off this deal. And so the last Joseph saw of his brothers was being carried away by some Midianite traders who were going down to Egypt, crying, screaming, please don't let this happen. And his brothers are getting farther and farther into the distance as he's being taken down to Egypt. That was the last memory, a memory of betrayal that he had of his brothers. And on top of that, Another emotion was is they, as soon as he saw them, they bowed down before him. And of course, that brought to his mind immediately the dreams that he had some 20 plus years earlier of this very thing happening. Now, I believe Joseph was a godly man, of course, who trusted in the God of heaven. He trusted that God had given him dreams. He didn't know how in the world these dreams were going to be fulfilled. How is Jacob? You know, and my brother's going to bow down before me. That seemed like a fanciful thing, but he did trust God, I'm convinced. And now here was the fulfillment 22 years later. I mean, wow. Now, Joseph, as we've begun to see, is going to give them a really hard time, a really hard time. And many see in his treatment of his brothers a heart of revenge coming through. I don't see it that way. I really don't. Because several times, he has to excuse himself to go weep in private. I mean, this is not a man hardened by bitterness, seeking some kind of revenge against these men. It is God using Joseph to bring his brothers to a place of brokenness, confession, and repentance for what they had done. 
And the way that Joseph deals with his brothers is masterful. really is. And it models for us the way that God often will deal with us when we have sinned or we're living in sin to bring us to a place of brokenness and repentance. I mean, the, God is always about restoration. God loves us so much. He wants to bless us. He wants to, he, he wants to pour out upon our lives his blessings. He can't do that if we're living in sin. So God is always about bringing conviction because without conviction, there's going to be no confession. People say, well, how do I know if it's God's conviction or Satan's condemnation? I'll give you a simple test. It, it, they both feel kind of yucky, by the way. Okay, so how do I know what, what is God convicting and what is Satan condemning? When God is convicting, you will feel like running to him. When Satan is condemning, you will feel like running away from God. That's how we can know. And God is to bring conviction into a person's life before they recognize, you know, wow, I need to get right with God. I need to get back to God, which means I need to confess what I've done, repent for my sins. God often, well, I think it's pretty clear in our lives, he will often bring us face to face, if not always, with our sin, or maybe the consequences that we have caused someone that we have hurt or wronged. And God makes us take a good hard look at what we've done in the hopes that we will acknowledge it, confess that we were wrong, repent, and get right with him because he wants to bless our lives again. So we see Joseph acting as a type of Christ does that very thing with his brothers. Verse 9, Then Joseph said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, they're horrified. Can you imagine? All right. They're just down there to buy some bread. They don't know this guy from Adam. Standing in front of this guy, all of a sudden starts talking rough to him, mean. Your spies are like terrified. What's going on? And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Well, that's open to debate. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. Now, I think that um, this must have instantly filled Joseph's heart with joy. <laughs> we mean, well, now we know his dad is still alive. And Benjamin, his youngest full brother. I mean, Joseph's mom, Rachel, only had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So Benjamin was uh, the only full brother, full sibling he had. And, uh, you know, 22 years is a long time. He doesn't know what's happened to his dad or his youngest brother. And now he knows that they're both alive. Verse 14, But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. And you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So we put them all together in prison. How many days? Three days. From this, some believe that Joseph could have been put in that pit for three days by his brothers before being pulled out and sold into slavery. Look. Everything these men had done to Joseph, everything they had sown in Joseph's life, they are now reaping in their own life. Isn't that the law of reciprocity? What you sow, you will reap. I mean, I think he calls them spies four times in the, in the in this section. You remember when he came out 
to see them. They called him a spy, working for their father. So all that they've done to Joseph, they are now getting back in their own lives. Verse 18, Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. Now that had to take them back. You fear God. That was the covenant name of God that God used with Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew it. And now here, an Egyptian, so they think, is saying, I fear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, this situation is getting weirder and weirder by the moment, as we'll see by the time it's almost, it's all done. They're going to be basket cases before Joseph reveals himself to them. So do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. I'll, I'll keep one here in prison. The rest of you can go home. If you're honest, guys, uh, you know, I'll send you with some food back to Canaan. Um, but, you know, bring your youngest brother, verse 20, uh, to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. It's amazing. After 22 years, these men are still living with the guilt of what they had done to Joseph. Guilt is a very powerful force. And the only way it can truly be eliminated is through confession and repentance. And if it's possible, restoration. So if we wrong somebody and we get right with God, we confess that sin, we repent of it, if we can restore to them what we have taken or whatever we've done to hurt them, we can make it right, we should do that. Sometimes that's not always possible. I heard a story from one of our Calvary pastors who said when his cousin was just um, a teenager, maybe 17 or so, he got in a real fight with his best friend and killed him. Moment of anger, you know, I don't know the circumstances, but he killed his best friend. He went to prison for 20 years, came out of prison, wasn't a believer, of course, and he couldn't live with, the, all that time he lived with the guilt, he couldn't live with the guilt anymore. He finally committed suicide. I mean, guilt, God has designed our, our spiritual man in such a way that guilt is God's alarm system that warns us when we have violated something he has said. If that guilt drives us to God as we confess our sins and repent and we get right with him, then guilt has done a good thing. But people that don't know God, refuse to come to God, to Jesus, often they have to live with the guilt the rest of their lives. It leads them to alcohol, to drugs, and sometimes to suicide. Because guilt can only really be uh, alleviated through confession, repentance, and so on. There's another way to, to kind of turn the guilt off, and that is by you know having your conscience seared with a hot iron. In other words, if you can convince yourself what you did was right, then the guilt doesn't affect you anymore. Like when the Nazis killed Jews and so on. Many of them uh, didn't have any guilt because they really believed they were doing the greater good, creating a, a super race and so on. So you can turn your conscience off, and uh, guilt no longer is an issue, but uh, that's never a wise thing to do because guilt is designed by God to bring you to repentance and to Christ. 
Verse 22. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not... No, they're still, you know, they're still standing in front of Joseph, okay? Uh, they're talking in uh, Hebrew. They don't know he can understand them. So right in front of him, talking in Hebrew, they said, you know, we're guilty because of what we did to our brother. This is all coming upon us because of that. Then Reuben pipes up and says, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter, and he turned himself away from them and wept. I think this is being used by God not only to deal with Joseph's brothers, but also to heal Joseph's heart. You say, well, what do you mean? This guy really hasn't had closure in 22 years. He's forgiven his brothers, but there hasn't really been closure. When his brothers are standing in front of him, talking in Hebrew to each other, he now for the first time realizes that they were not all in agreement about this. Reuben tried to stop them. Maybe there were others who weren't on board with this as well. And now they're all feeling very guilty. I think that God was using this to bring closure to Joseph's heart to heal him, you know? That he realized, you know, what they did was wrong. But I, I, I'm so grateful that God is working, that they're acknowledging what they did was wrong. There's guilt there. That's a good thing. And so on. Verse 24, And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So he's going to keep Simeon in prison in Egypt while he sends the others back to Canaan to get Benjamin to come back and prove that they're not spies, okay, by bringing their youngest brother with them. Now, I think Joseph had Simeon bound and put into prison uh, until his brothers came back with Benjamin because I really believe Simeon was probably the ringleader. And all that they had done to Joseph. How did Joseph know Simeon? Was, he wasn't standing there when they concocted this whole thing. How did he know he was the kind of the ringleader of this whole thing? Well, I believe that when Reuben turned to his brothers and said, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? I believe he turned to them all, but looked directly at Simeon. And Joseph was like, Got it. This one, put him in chains, throw him in prison. I'll keep him, okay? I'll keep him while the others go back to Canaan. Uh, we know that Simeon was a cruel and vindictive man who, along with Levi, butchered a whole town of men. Uh, one of them, the son of the man who founded the town, his the son was named Shechem. Uh, his father named the town after him. No doubt the city of Shechem was popular with a lot of relatives, and when Shechem raped their uh, sister Dinah, Simeon and Levi were so angry that they wound up slaughtering all the men of that city. You remember the story. So we know that Simeon and Levi, but Simeon was a very cruel and vindictive man. And I'm sure he hated Joseph because he was dad's favorite, you know, that kind of thing. And so I could see him being the one who kind of orchestrated this whole thing and, uh, you know, killing Joseph and so on, which they didn't wind up doing, of course. Verse 25, 
Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack. Now, the brothers don't know what's going on. Joseph tells his servants, go ahead, fill their sacks with grain, put their money inside the sack in the grain, so they can't see it, but stick it in there, okay? And give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, My money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? It's interesting. These men attribute what is going on with them, they attribute it as being some kind of a judgment from God. In a way, they were right, but not like they were thinking. Okay, God wasn't wanting to kill them. He was wanting to get them right. Okay, get them right with him. But, you know, they say, what, what is God doing to us? This guy's going to think we stole the money back. Oh, we're in trouble now. Now we're done for. We can never... We can never see this guy's face again because he'll for sure kill us. Thinking that we stole our money back, we ripped them off, right? Verse 29, Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who was lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest, that you're truly honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine uh, for your, of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. If you come back and show me your younger brother, then I'll, I'll release your brother, and you guys can trade in the land, and it's going to be fine. Okay? Verse 35, Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that, surprisingly, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. You ever felt that way? That everything was against you? Let me tell you what you do if you start feeling that way. You remind yourself of what Paul said in Romans 8. He said, is God truly against us? Didn't he send his son? Didn't Jesus die for us? And since we are his children, God is for us. He is for us. And if God be for us, no one or no thing could ever be against us. In fact, Paul went on to say, God's word promises us that as children of God, all things are working together for what? Good. For good. To those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Jacob, you have no idea. It appears that all things are working against you. But really, all things were not working against Jacob. They were working for him. See, Jacob had no way of knowing that at the time. At the time, he had no way of knowing that. But in just a very short time, he was going to be reunited with Joseph, the son whom he thought was dead, 
who he thought he would never see again. Not only that, in a very short time, Jacob and his whole family would be living down in Egypt in the most fertile land in the whole land of Egypt, living like royalty. See, God was not against Jacob. He was for Jacob. Jacob didn't know it at the time. He should have. He should have known that as a child of God, whom God had given some incredible promises to, started with Abraham, then to Isaac, and then God gave promises to Jacob. He should have trusted his God. Remember that the next time, you know, you're tempted by your circumstances to feel that God's against you, God's not for me, all things are working against me, remember that, you know, it's as Peter said, our problem is we only see what is near and not what is afar off. Jacob could only see his immediate circumstance. He didn't have the big picture as God did. And we don't have the big picture either. That's why we have to, what? Trust our God. Again, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things are working together for our good. It doesn't say we see. It says we know. The Greek is a word that means intuitively based on our faith. Because God's told us. God has told us that all things are working together for our good. Even if we don't see it, we trust God. We rejoice in all things, not because of the situation necessarily, but because of what God is doing in our lives through it, what he's preparing us for and so on. Well, verse 37. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, now this is a very spiritual thing to say, look, kill my two sons. You know, I don't, Kill my two sons if I don't bring... Uh, him back to you, you know, put him in my hands and I'll bring, uh, you know, I'll bring Benjamin, I'll, let me take him down to Egypt and I'll bring him back. And if I don't come back, kill my two sons. Yeah, like a grandfather is going to, you know, take joy in that, uh, killing his own grandkids, okay? So I don't know where some of these guys were coming from, all right? Uh, you know, yeah, that's going to make me feel real a lot better, Reuben, okay? If you don't come back with Benjamin, I'll just kill your boys, my grandkids. But he said, my son shall not go down with you. Okay, Jacob, there's no way. I'm not sending Benjamin down with you. He's not going to go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Let me paraphrase what Jacob is saying. Simeon can rot in prison. Okay, he can rot in prison. I've lost one son. For my beloved Rachel, I'm not about to lose the last one. Rachel was the love of Jacob's life. She only had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And so he's saying, you know, you always knew where you stood with Jacob, by the way. Okay? We learned that in chapter 32. When he arranged all the families according to his least favorite in the front of the line to his most favorite in the back, as they were coming towards Esau and he had an army with him, not knowing what Esau had in mind, maybe he's going to start killing everybody. So he puts up, you know, puts all his least favorite wives and kids in front. You know, what a great guy, you know. Uh, so you, you always knew where you stood with Jacob. But uh, he's basically saying, you know, Simeon, you know, I'm not that fond of him anyways. There's no way I'm sending Benjamin down. He's my favorite, all right. Well, chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain, which... Uh, they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Okay? But Judah spoke to him, saying, 
the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongly with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Now, you read this, and of course the uh, humanness comes through, right? And these were, you know, like patriarchs, but they were still human beings. Uh, you read this, and I think we're prone to think that, you know, maybe this is just another example of a carnal family dealing with each other, arguing, you know. Uh, and I'm not saying that Jacob and his sons were free from carnality by any means. It's just that the Holy Spirit makes it a point to call Jacob what? Israel. Israel. Which I believe was the name he always called him, the Holy Spirit always called him when Jacob was not in the flesh, but was actually acting in the Spirit. Now, what does this tell us, all right? What does this tell us? Because, you know, it's easy to say this is just carnality. Well, but the Holy Spirit calls Jacob Israel as he's involved in this, you know, argument. What could the Holy Spirit be teaching us? I don't want to take this too far, but I really think that the Holy Spirit could be teaching us, one of the lessons is, that God's people who are Spirit-filled, People who are walking in the Spirit can still argue with each other, can still have some very strong opinions about things, can still, you know, um, I, I don't know, have conflict uh, and strong opinions on different issues. That doesn't make them carnal per se. It just simply might reflect a passion in their hearts for what is right. You know, it reminds us of Paul and Barnabas, how they disagreed so strongly about whether they should take John Mark on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take his nephew, John Mark, uh, with them on the second missionary journey. Paul said, no way. The kid bailed on us, uh, you know, uh, uh, in Pamphylia the last time we took him. I don't want him with us. He's supposed to be our gopher, you know, get us sodas at the 7-Eleven and carry the supplies. I mean, I can't have this kid bailing on us again. No way. And Barnabas, well, I think the kid has changed. I think he's grown. I think he's going to be good, Paul. The argument was so strong, they parted ways. And Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus. Paul took Silas and went north up into Antioch and over into Asia Minor. And people wrestle with, all right, were they acting in the flesh? What's going on here? I just believe there were, there were two passionate men who loved God, who had strong feelings about a certain course of action, it doesn't mean one was wrong and the other right. It could simply mean that they had very strong feelings about the right thing to do here. You know, when people serve God, people that love the Lord, people that are spirit-filled, you say, well, if they're spirit-filled, they all should be on the same page. Well, ideally, yeah, but, you know, it doesn't always happen, all right? You could be filled with the Spirit and still, you know, disagree with somebody else who's filled with the Spirit. But... The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. And I think sometimes spirit-filled people can get in an argument, because, and God allows it. Why? Because he's wanting to hone them. He's wanting to teach them how to work together 
through conflict. Or simply he's got different plans for their lives and they part ways. I don't know. I'm just saying, though, that as the Bible says, iron sharpens iron, sometimes people that are passionate about serving the Lord, believing a certain course of action is the right one to take and disagree with each other. And when that happens, sparks can fly. It doesn't mean they're being carnal. It just means they're passionate. I'll tell you what. You give me a couple of passionate believers who really are on fire for the Lord, who really want to reach people for Christ, I'll take them all day long, sparks and all, to those people who have no fire for anything. They come, they warm a chair or a pew for a while. There's no passion, there's no conviction, there's no fire. Forget it. I really, give, me the, give me the fiery saints who sometimes butt heads, but they do it because they're so passionate for God and they feel strongly about what they should be doing in a course of action. Give me those people all, all day long. Now, verse 8. Then Judah said to Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we uh, and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back, if I don't bring Benjamin back to you and set him before you, then let him bear the bl- let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. If you would have let us just take the kid and go down, we would have been back already instead of waiting all this time. How much time has passed since they came back? I'm thinking it had to be six months. Okay. And what's going on with Simeon? I'm sure he's not real happy. He's kind of a hothead anyways. You know? I mean, six months in an Egyptian prison, it's a long time. Of course, Joseph knows that only too well, doesn't he? He was in that prison for, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years maybe. Verse 11, And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand. And take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise and go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other, your other brother and Benjamin. And if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So once again, Joseph, excuse me, once again, Jacob is forced to trust God. This was not easy for Jacob, all right? He always was trying to connive his way out of things. Again, perfect illustration was we just talked about in chapter 32, how he tries to orchestrate this meeting with Esau and divides animals into droves and servants with each drove to kind of placate Esau with each of these gifts until finally when Jacob reached Esau, the idea was he'd be so buttered up with all the gifts and things that he would spare Jacob and his family. Uh, but jo- Jacob was always trying to scheme his way out of things. It was very hard for him. And what did God do? The night before he was to meet his brother, what did God do? the Lord Jesus wrestled with him all night, finally touched his hip, threw it out of joint, out of socket, crippling him. So Jacob couldn't run anymore. He had to stay put and trust God. Now, God doesn't want to do that if he doesn't have to. He will. Remember what David said in Psalm 32? He said, you know, don't be like the stupid horse and mule who have to be controlled by bit and bridle or else they won't go where you want them to go. 
God doesn't want to inflict pain in our lives to get us to go in certain directions. He wants us to be, you know, uh, willing to obey him. This is the first little, you know, little nudge uh, he gives to us. We're going off in his will where he wants us to go. But Jacob had a hard time with this. I'll tell you what's very liberating. When you finally stop striving, struggling, and say, God, I, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm out of resources. I have to trust you. Oh, dear, wow. Thanks. I'm sure the Lord says, well, thank you. That Now you have to trust me. This is what you should have been doing right along, right? But Jacob says, look, here's the deal. You go ahead. You go take Benjamin. Take some presents for the guy, okay? Hopefully, he'll release Simeon, Benjamin. You guys can come back here safely. But if I'm bereaved if he kills Benjamin or whatever. It is what it is, basically. It's the same place Esther came to many years later when uh, Haman concocted this little scheme that on a certain date all the Jews in the kingdom of Persia would be killed. Uh, Ahasuerus not realizing that his own wife was a Jewess. So he signs this hasty decree. And um, Mordecai, her uh, cousin, who raised her, because she was uh, orphaned when she was young. Mordecai, who raised her, said to her, you have to go into the king and intercede on behalf of your people that we not all die. And she said, well, you don't understand. I, I can't go into the king, my husband, unless he summons me. If I go into the king unsummoned and he doesn't raise up the scepter, the golden scepter, it's my head. And Mordecai says, do you think because you live in the palace you're going to escape the king's decree? He said, you know, I believe that you've been raised up by God, put in this position for this very moment in time. Are you going to fulfill the purpose God's called you to? Because if you don't, God will save his people through some other means. But you will lose the opportunity and perish in the, in the way. And uh, so what did Esther say? Okay, have everyone fast and pray for three days. And at the end of three days, I'll go into the king. And if I perish, I perish. Same idea. I'm just going to trust God. Now, you might be thinking, <laughs> if there was a famine in the land, where did they get this dried fruit, pistachios, and almonds? <laughs> well, they probably had these stored before the famine hit, and they had kept them, I think, for extreme emergency, but also possibly for a special occasion. Remember now, what they were lacking was a staple like bread made from, of course, wheat. Your King James says corn, but it wasn't corn, it was wheat, okay? And uh, the idea was that, you know, that's what they were after. That's what they lived on. And um, so they, they still had some food. Uh, and, and, and I want you to notice that what they brought down to Joseph, thinking he was just prime minister, uh, were things that were not readily available in Egypt. These were some of the things that the Midianites were bringing down to Egypt, the Midianite traders, when Joseph was sold into slavery to them spices and different things but these were these were uh, things that the egyptians didn't have access to readily so that made it special made it a special gift okay verse 15 so the men took that present and benjamin and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to egypt and they stood before joseph when joseph saw benjamin with them he said to the steward of his house take these men to my house and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, 
uh, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now, the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money. See, they got, these guys are guilty all over the place. It's because of the money, which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and fall upon us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. Okay, so they're really nervous that they're going to be made slaves. They weren't so compassionate to Joseph when they sold him into slavery. Now, I don't know if Joseph is enjoying this little charade. I'll tell you one thing. I do. Whenever I read this story, I just enjoy this. I mean, that doesn't probably say good things about me. You know, it's a little that vindictiveness coming out, you know. Because, you know, in my flesh, I'm like, get these guys. Get them, Lord, you know. And the Lord's just trying to reach them to, to, to break them and all, you know. And sometimes we just want people like this to get it. Which isn't good, all right? But I'll tell you what, these guys don't know what to make of this. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. They don't know what to make of this guy. Here, the first time they stood before him, he yells at them, calls them spies, throws them in prison for three days. The next time they stand before him, he invites them home, didn't really invite them. He brought them home to his house to have lunch with him. Now look, these were Bedouins, right? They lived in tents, Jacob and his family. I'm sure Joseph lived in a very nice palace there in Egypt. He was a big, big shot, okay? So these guys, I think their heads were spinning. What is going on? This guy is the weirdest guy we've ever known. I think he's nuts, probably was what they were thinking. Verse 19, when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We did not, do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he, the steward now, Joseph's servant, said, uh, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now look, I believe the steward was the same guy that had been uh, acting as Joseph's interpreter. That's just my conviction, right? I also believe that because he worked so closely with Joseph, uh, I believe Joseph led this guy to the Lord. I believe this guy was a believer. I believe that now he's working along with, I'm sure Joseph had let him in on the whole deal. And now he's working along with Joseph to bring these guys to a place of brokenness and repentance. Now, again, when you read verse 23, the steward, he's an Egyptian. What does he say to these guys? Peace be with you. You know what the Hebrew? Shalom. He says to them, shalom. They're like, what? An Egyptian is saying shalom to us? The brothers are so scared. <laughs> They're going to be accused of stealing the money back that they had brought the first time to buy grain. That they want to confess to the first person who will listen to them. That's not what happened. Who happens to be the steward. Now, he doesn't help any. Because he basically says, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I had your money. Your God must have put money in your sacks. They're going, oh my, what's happening? All right, what's going on? All right. Then it says at the end of verse uh, 23, then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, I can only imagine 
what the first words out of Simeon's mouth were. I'm sure we couldn't repeat them in Bible study. I'm sure he was not happy. Because, I mean, he spent, I'm thinking at least six months in this prison. Okay. It's like, where were you guys? And I'm sure he had exclamation points with a lot of colorful language. Okay. Verse 24, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house, gave them water, and they washed their feet and gave their donkey's feet. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, he brought him, uh, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? See, now, they, he had known, Joseph had known earlier the first time that Jacob was still alive, but now, you know, it might have been six, eight, who knows how long it's been. And now he's not sure. He says, look, is your father, you know, is he still well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Verse 28, and they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. See, you know, they're just bowing down to the ground. They're just looking at the floor. He talks to them. They raise up their heads, give him an answer, and they look down at the floor again because they don't want to do anything to make this guy... He's a loose cannon, they figure. We're not going to do anything to make him more upset. Verse 29, Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he, Now, 22 years has passed. Uh, Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. How old was Benjamin? I don't know. He might have been 10. Okay, now he's 32 years old. So Joseph isn't sure. I mean, I'm sure he figured out it was Benjamin, but... He says, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. I mean, the emotion of this moment, it just comes right off the page. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, that's just not the Hebrews. You have to understand, they set up three tables, one for Joseph, one for his brothers, and then one for whatever other Egyptians were in the house, maybe uh, lived with Joseph, were dignitaries maybe, who had stopped over for lunch. Who knows what they were, but they were Egyptians. Three tables. Now, you have to understand something that at this time in Egypt, Egypt was the most racially segregated place on earth. Why was that? Because the Egyptians believed they descended from the gods. All other peoples were lesser than them. We would say less evolved, okay? Because of that, there was very little uh, mixing, you know, socially between Egyptians and others that were non-Egyptians. Even Joseph who was their prime minister. They wouldn't even eat with the Egyptians. The Egyptians wouldn't even eat with him, okay? You know, if they wouldn't eat with Joseph, uh, they for sure weren't going to eat with his shepherd brothers because the Egyptians looked upon shepherding as an abomination. They abhorred shepherds for some reason. Uh, it, just, they were just a, it was a, just an abomination, that profession. Uh, that's why when Joseph brought his family down to Egypt, uh, they settled in the land of Goshen. That was where all the... Um, Shepherding took place. The, the, the grass was incredible there. 
So, uh, so they, re they remained there. They didn't really mix with the Egyptians because the Egyptians didn't really mix with foreigners, especially those who were shepherds. One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, Herein is the wisdom of God. Before Genesis is finished, God brought the entire family of Jacob into Egypt, where they were isolated from the surrounding people for some 400 years. In that time, they multiplied greatly, increasing to millions. If God had allowed them to remain in Canaan, they would have simply assimilated into the corrupt and godless peoples of Canaan. God not only had to take the family of Israel out of the corrupt environment of Canaan, but he had to put them among the racially separated people who would not often intermarry or mingle with them. God simply sent Joseph on ahead to make the arrangements, end quote. So you, you look at this and you see, wow, wow. I mean, just to see why God orchestrated this. You say, well, why did he have to bring him from Canaan down to Egypt for this very reason? Because the Can they wouldn't have intermarried with the Canaanites. They had already begun to do. Um, you know, that's what he, uh, Ishmael did. And so God, to keep them pure from, you know, Gentile DNA, I guess, brings them down to a place called Egypt where they could prosper. I mean, the grazing land was incredible down there uh, in Goshen and around that area, the Nile uh, Delta. But because of the way the Egyptians felt about foreigners, the Egyptians didn't want to mingle with the Jews, so they stayed separate. The genius of God. Well, verse 33. And they sat before him, the firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. What Joseph does is he arranges these guys. He has them sit from the oldest to the youngest. In the exact order, they're looking at each other going, what in the world? Now, you know what? As somebody has estimated, the chances of somebody taking 11 brothers and on the first try arranging them in the proper order from the oldest to the youngest is one chance in 40 million. That's pretty incredible. So these guys, not realizing this was Joseph and he knew who they were, now they're thinking this guy is you know, divination powers, so on. Okay. Well, verse 34. Then he took servings to them from before him. So he serves them. Remember what it says of Jesus in the kingdom when we first sit down? He is going to gird himself and he's going to wait on us. The quintessential servant. Joseph being a type of Christ. He serves his brethren. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. So they kind of lighten up a little bit. But look, you say, well, why did he give Benjamin a portion that was five times as large as theirs? Well, obviously, he loved his little brother dearly. But I think in some ways, um, he wanted to see how they would treat Benjamin in the face of this favoritism because they knew he knew how he, they had treated him in the face of his father's favoritism, have these men changed? Have these men changed at all over this last 20-plus years? See, I'm going to favor my youngest brother, give him a lot more than I give to these guys, and I want to see the reaction. I want to see how they handle it. And apparently, they did pretty well. We don't see from the text any indication that they were upset with Benjamin or jealous or anything like that. So I think Joseph begins to see here that, look, 
I think these guys have changed. Well, at this point, they're between 40 and 60 years of age. I mean, some of them were in their early 60s. Some of them were still around 40, 45. Uh, they're grown men. They're grown men. And, you know, it's a lot of times we do st stupid things, selfish things when we're younger. But hopefully, as we get older, we grow out of those things. I think Joseph's brothers um, grew out of a lot of the things that they had attitude they had shown him when he was a younger guy. Well, no good place to stop, but we'll have to stop here, all right? Because uh, it, it's just too incredible to try to cram it in, but we want to take our time looking at the rest of this story and how it unfolds. So we'll pick it up next week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the lessons you have put here for our learning. And I think, Lord, the main lesson is that, like Joseph, we must focus on your sovereignty. That, Lord, nothing happens in our lives that you haven't allowed for some reason, for some purpose. And, Lord, we have to focus on your sovereignty. We have to focus on what your plans are. And not, Lord, hold bitterness and, and uh, revenge in our hearts against those that have wronged us. They might have intended evil toward us. But, Lord, you're using it for good. And so, Lord, give us grace to just focus on you, to be like Joseph, to forget the past, embrace the present, because only then can you truly bless us and make us fruitful. We just thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.